Well, this morning we come to the most known and probably the most loved part of the story of Jonah. And so I invite you to open your Bibles and turn to Jonah chapter 2. Up to this point, we see a man who had been called by God, a man of prophet of God, uh, who had been a prophet. We see him elsewhere uh, in the scriptures, uh, prophesying uh, to uh, God's people in Israel. Uh, called of God to go to uh, the uh, people who had oppressed uh, his people and actually been brutal and, and cruel uh, to uh, to the Jewish people, uh, people from Assyria, uh, particularly, in the, and, and the Lord sent him to the capital in Nineveh. Uh, and he didn't want to go, and so as pretty much everyone knows. Uh, rather than go this direction, he went the other direction, jumping on a boat and the Lord, in order to recourse him, uh, sent a tremendous storm. Uh, when the sailors all began to try to figure out how they could satisfy whatever God was um, causing this storm, uh, they began offering sacrifices, came to Jonah, and Jonah told them who he was and that his God was the God who created the, the land and the sea. And they asked him, what should we do? He said, throw me overboard, and then everything will go well for you, and, and it did. And we're going to pick up there, for the sake of context, we're going to begin reading uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 15, uh, as we uh, then will read through the uh, entirety of, of chapter 2. And so we pick up with the, uh, with the sailors and, and their, uh, what they did and, and their attitude. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to this, your word. We give thanks to you for it and for Jonah. And I pray that you would enable us uh, by your spirit to have insights into this story, uh, not just simply for the sake of knowing the story and knowing it more fully and, and better, uh, but grant us the ability to see ourselves in Jonah and then to see the work that you're doing in him is also the work that you do within all who you believe, who, who believe in you, who belong to you. And so, Lord, grant us uh, this ability to see that we may also see that you are at work 
and we may recognize that your promise is true. What you have begun, you will see through to the end. Use your word, Lord, to shape us to your praise and glory for our joy, we pray in Christ. Amen. Many people find the story of Jonah rather fishy. They find it hard to swallow that a man could live inside a fish for three days. So they mythologize the account and saying it's a great story, but it's told to make a point. It's not really true or not necessarily true. Or if they don't mythologize, they allegorize and, and they, they say that the story is an actual event, but some of the details have been changed. And for instance, there are, are some scholars, uh, not those who you should read, but there are some who suggest that, uh, that Jonah actually was uh, out and tossed into the sea, uh, but he was picked up and, and captured by uh, another boat and then held in, imprisoned in, in Hull. And therefore, the allegory here is that they just made the boat into a, a big fish, and he was you know, held in, in the belly of it until a couple days later he he was let go. So they mythologize or they, they allegorize it. But I, I suspect that if the skeptics would do a little bit of research, they would find their doubts subsiding. At least they may if they were to consider it with uh, an open mind. Uh, one of the great debates is about, you know, this whole thing is, is it fish? Is it a whale? And, you know, the, the text is pretty clear here. It says that it is a great fish. Uh, what often is not mentioned is that there is no word for whale in ancient Hebrew. And so therefore, the scholars have said, you know, it very well may have been a, a whale. I mean, this was not a marine biology textbook. This was a story. In fact, the, the fish is not even the primary uh, focus of, of the story. The story is about a man and how he is relating even to God, even as he's running from God. Uh, but it very may, may well be a, a whale. It may very well be a huge fish. It could be either one of the two. It could be some other uh, species, that uh, a fish that, that we may not uh, see much anymore. Uh, it may be a species that doesn't seem to grow quite as much, uh, and so therefore there are you know, any number of things. I, I read, a, if you go on the webpage for the James River Association, as they're seeking to re revitalize uh, the river, uh, they tell us that the Settlers, when they first came to Jamestown, they fed themselves on sturgeon that they would catch that were 12 to 14 feet in length. In fact, they find fossils and records say so that the, the largest sturgeon caught way back at that point was 15 feet long and 800 pounds. The sturgeons that they find now grow to be, you know, five to nine feet, and they're between 90 and 160 pounds. Still a pretty good-sized fish, but they're, they're beginning to see them get larger. So even just a couple of hundred years ago, there were fish that were quite significantly larger than we find them now. You can just probably Google anything and find a number of things that they continue to rediscover. Only last year, they found underneath the sea in great depths near South Africa, a fish that they thought that had been extinct for a number of time, and it's incredibly large. And, and so there's any number of species that it, it could have been, whether it was a fish or whether it was whale. I guess if you're going to remember anything at this point is, it could be either one. And so since I'm going to use them interchangeably today, uh, no, no emails correcting me, please. Um, but more the problem for people is the whole idea of somebody living for three days inside of this fish or whale. It's rather ironic because most people have no problem believing that there are great fish that we see often off of the coast of 
the, the United States, particularly in Connecticut and Georgia, particularly New London and Savannah, of these great fish which can swallow up to 14 men and keep them under the sea for six months at a time with no problem. We call them nuclear submarines. In fact, if I understand, some of you may even be starting and building some of them at, uh, down, down the river at, uh, at the shipyards. And it's really kind of interesting is we have no problem believing that man can create this thing that can keep 14 people alive for six months at a time, but God can't create something that would keep somebody alive for, uh, for uh, three days. It just, it's, it's just somebody has to come with a bent and say, to, to say it's impossible to an intent to disbelief this. And so ironically, uh, we believe one thing, people believe one thing, but not another. Biologically, some would say that, well, the problem is that a whale just, is not capable. A whale has a, typically has a very narrow throat and therefore wouldn't be able to swallow a, a manhole. And while that may be true of certain whales, it's not true of all whales. It is true of the, apparently the, the Greenland whale, which has a very small throat. In fact, it would be very difficult for the, that whale to swallow even a large orange without having uh, chopped it up first. But I, I, the, the, the great sperm whale has a mouth that is 20 feet long 15 feet high and nine feet wide. In fact, they said that the dimensions of the sperm whale's mouth is larger than uh, most small apartment bedrooms. And so somebody could have very easily uh, been swallowed by that great fish, that great mammal, for those of you who are sticklers for the biology and live with there. So ironically, you know, we, we believe one thing, but we doubt God's. Uh, biologically, it's, it's not actually an accurate statement to say that uh, a man can't live in there. And even historically, there are accounts of people who have been swallowed by whale, by fish, or by shark, and have survived. In February 1891, the whale ship Star of the East was off the coast of the Falkland Islands. And the lookout spotted a sperm whale off in the distance, and so they lowered two of the boats uh, into the water uh, with a harpooner. So they, they rolled out to a distance, and one of the uh, harpooners uh, shot out, shot the whale. Uh, the whale, once the, uh, once the harpoon uh, struck the whale, the whale lashed out. The tail came up with such force that it turned over uh, the other boat. One of the men in that boat sank and uh, drowned. Uh, the other man uh, just seemed to have disappeared, a man named James Bartley. After a while, uh, they finally hauled the whale in and put them back on the deck and they tended to it, however uh, the, these uh, fishermen or whalers uh, would do. And they uh, began to cut it up in the, in the days um, that, that came. And eventually they had pulled, uh, used a crane to, to pull the stomach out of the whale. And when the stomach was left hanging on, on this crane that had pulled them up, they, they recognized something was moving in there rather spasmodically. And this was a couple of days that uh, had, had, between the time that they had first uh, uh, harpooned the whale and now were uh, tending to, to this. Uh, and so the crew cut it open and James Bartley fell out on the deck. And here's the description. At the end, uh, the crew was startled uh, when something in the stomach giving, uh, kind of, was giving signs of life inside. Inside the well, they found the missing man, James Bartley, doubled up and unconscious. They laid him out on the deck, and they treated him uh, to a bath of seawater to revive him. At the end of three weeks, 
Bartley had fully recovered and had resumed his place on the ship. His face, his neck, and his hands were bleached, deathly white from the stomach acids. But otherwise, he was fine. Bartley affirmed that had he not been rescued, he likely would have lived until he starved. He said he had, he was lost, had lost his senses through fright, not through lack of air. And so we see a number of illustrations as, as people find this story to be uh, difficult to uh, believe because the story, at least at this uh, juncture, is of a man who, having been cast into the sea, had been swallowed by a great fish or a whale, lived within that whale for, or fish for three days, uh, and then finally was spit up and, and then survived and went on on his way. But whether or not you have difficulty believing the story of Jonah, one thing that is unfortunate is that so much emphasis is placed on the whale to begin with. Again, it's, it's not a story about a whale. If this story was made into a play, if this story was made into a movie that was faithful to the original writing, to the original author, to the book, the whale would at best have a you know, supporting actor billing, but more likely would be um, just an extra or, or the prop uh, for, for the uh, movement of the play. The Scottish satirists, Scottish essayists, Thomas Carlyle, wrote this. I was so obsessed with what was going on inside the whale that I missed seeing the real drama going on inside of Jonah. And that's what the story is about. That's what this is recorded for us. While it's fascinating to think about the experience that he had, the whole purpose of God recording this for us is that we would see what's going on inside of Jonah. Because when we see what's going on inside of Jonah, we can get a sense of what may be going on inside of us and how God is faithful to his promise that he who began a good work will see it through and to the end. He is continually at work within those who belong to him. But it begs a couple of questions that we want to look at here this morning. The first question, uh, well, before we get there, so what is going on inside of Jonah? And what we see going on inside of Jonah is this, is it is a work of God's grace. See, it's interesting because if you think about the story up to this point, the man who was running from God, one had nothing to do with the mission that God had sent him on. A man who had been a prophet of God, is, is called in, in uh, to be a prophet of God, a man who clearly knew God, even though it seems like he, he doesn't like him very much right here, because he doesn't like what God wants him to do. He doesn't like what God is going to do by giving forgiveness to a people that he doesn't think deserve it. And, and so he's willing to run. He's even willing to die, toss me into the sea. And many scholars believe that, you know, that was not just a matter of appeasing uh, the, the situation, but he would rather die than actually fulfill. And he thought that by being thrown into the sea, he was going to drown. And, and, and the Lord's providence, he didn't. And we see that attitude. And, and here in chapter two, we, we see this man beginning to pray. Now, I can't help but whenever I read this, but start cracking up at this point in time. It's kind of like, as we make this transition into chapter two, then Jonah prayed. It's kind of like, I got some time on my hands now. Um, you know, got nothing to do. Don't know how long, but uh, I thought I was going to die. I got thrown into the sea. I got swallowed by this fish. I'm still alive. What am I going to do now? And I don't know what took place between the time that he realized what the situation is and his recognition, because this is not a prayer of desperation of help. This is a prayer of confession. This is a prayer of, of somebody who is experiencing the work of God's 
grace in his life, a transformation, one that we all need. And for us to understand it, we, we ask the questions that I want to get to, which is first is, is really the most fundamental is what is grace? If this is the work of God's grace, what is grace? Now, the Presbyterian answer that I'm obliged to give you is uh, grace is unmerited favor. And it's not just that I'm obliged to do that, but it really is a very good definition. In other words, it is God's uh, giving to you and giving to me, giving to all who belong to him, something that we have not merited, we have not deserved. In fact, not only have we not, we're not able to. Because there's no way for us to live our lives in such a way that God would say, I need that particular person. He or she has done everything that could possibly be done because all of us go our own way. All of us rebel in some way or another against God. All of us have our, our own desires and you know we all wander away from God. And even if we were to only do that one day of our lives and just make that one mistake and wander and then the next day we get back on course and we live perfect lives therefore out, well, we're supposed to live perfect lives so therefore there is no extra credit. We, we never are able to earn God's favor but God, because of who he is, and his own character. He loves those who are unlovable. And he's redeemed some and called some to be his own. He has poured his favor out. And so it's an important definition that we understand that it is God's favor that he pours out, not because somebody has achieved something or not because somebody would, looks like they would be a good uh, draft pick for his team, but simply because of his own character. He chooses whom he was going to choose, and then he begins that work, and he continues that work until all reach full maturity, being like Christ Jesus. And while that's a good definition, it's also important that we look at it because it's kind of a narrow academic, you know, legal definition. I don't want to disregard that in any way, but there's been also been said, as, as one author put it this way, uh, a little bit more, um, more of an illustration. He said, grace is like an old English mansion full of unexplored rooms. Just when you think you've seen it all, you discover a new wing. Whenever you find a new wing, you are exhilarated with excitement over the new discovery and awed at how great, majestic, and unfathomable the house seems. And I think it's a wonderful picture that we, we need to recognize because it's easy to get this definition down. What is grace? It is, you know, unmerited favor and then kind of move on and not be awed by it. Uh, but grace is not just a, a legal uh, relationship, and it's not just an expression, a gift that God has given. It has gifts that go along with that. And so when someone becomes the object of God's affection, when somebody becomes the recipients of God's grace, there is an experience that goes along with that. And this picture of this old English mansion is wonderful. In other words, it is itself inspires awe. It is impressive. It is amazing. And you're thankful for it. And even when it seems like, okay, sooner or later, I'm going to see it all. The imagery here of saying, as soon as you think that you've seen it all, you all of a sudden see there's a whole new wing that you didn't even know was there. And grace is exactly like that. When it overwhelms you, when it grips you, it is amazing. And yet, after a time, sometimes it just seems like, well, you know, is that all there is? And the answer is no. Because we see the way that God works in the lives of other people, and we see the way that God works within us, and a whole new wing opens up, and that never, never ends. God's grace is unending. It is unfathomable. And so we recognize that God gives to those who are undeserving and is an expression of who he is in a way that continues to give, continues to amaze, and continues to, uh, to bring awe. Now, 
understanding those two dimensions of this, I want to just kind of want to do a, a multiple choice quiz for you for a moment. I'm going to give you three scenarios, and you can decide which one is grace. The first one is this. An employer pays your salary. and pays salaries of everybody who, who works for them. So it's payday. The employer uh, gives out the paychecks, and everybody gets paid. Is that grace? No. Because you've earned what it is that you get. So therefore, it's not grace. Now, consider the same scenario. At the end of uh, uh, th this particular week, everybody gets their payday, and the same employer says, I want to take, you know, Bob over here, and, we're, you know, he's worked with us, and he's worked with us for 40 years, and we're going to have a party, and he gets a tremendous gift. He gets a nice Rolex watch, you know, a new Mercedes or whatever. He's going to send me just a, a lavish uh, the gifts upon this guy. Is that grace? Well, I mean, it's gracious because, you know, he worked for the paycheck and he earned that, but, you know, he didn't, wasn't part of the contract that he would have this party and be given extra gifts. On the other hand, if Bob had been a lousy employee and borderline fired, he's probably not going to have that for his life, but he must have brought joy into the life of the people around. He brought benefit to the company that he was a part of. And so in that sense, it's gracious, but it's not really grace uh, because Bob had earned it. He'd, he'd worked hard and uh, of character and, and had uh, now receiving the reward for um, who he is. The third scenario is in the same company, you have somebody who's an absolute you know, an employee who comes in who's a lousy employee, and on top of that's an absolute jerk. The boss says, okay, I want you here at 8. They show up at 8.45. We're going to clock out at 5. They're usually going by 3.15, if somebody's not lucky. They're not particularly competent with their work. They don't get along with the other employees of this place. And yet, the one who owns the company not only continues to keep them on the payroll, uh, but continue to invest in him with the expectation that over time there, there might be a change that takes place. If he's loved enough, he's encouraged and equipped enough that he, he might actually show uh, that he uh, is worth the investment. Is this grace? It is. Because in that case, there's absolutely nothing on the part of the employee or of the person that is warrants anything except for being fired. And yet the one who is in charge of all this chooses to uh, keep him on board and to invest and to give that which does not deserve. And we need to recognize that because that's what grace is. The word grace is just used so often so cheaply. I mean, we, we use it in so many different ways that sometimes it's confusing as to us as to what it means. I mean, it is appropriate for the ballerina who is able to, to demonstrate a, a grace in, of movement. Uh, but a grace in relationship with God is the heart of God that is poured out on people who, who don't deserve it. People like Jonah, people like you, people like me. That's why one commentator says this about grace is the great leveler. It destroys the spiritual manic depression that many of us experience. Those who feel, look what I have achieved, they need grace. And those who feel like failures, you've got grace. Author Jerry Bridges says this about the doctrine of grace. Our worst days are never so bad that we are beyond the reach of God's grace. And our best days are never so good that we're, we are beyond the need God's grace. 
And we see all of that in Jonah in this situation. He clearly uh, was in rebellion against God. He clearly had, had sinned against God. Uh, there, and, and yet, God in his providence is calling him back and providing for him for what he needs in order to call him back. But if we're going to ask the question, what is grace? It's also important that we ask this question, what, how do I get grace? And the answer to that is you receive grace when you understand it. Colossians 1.6 says this, all over the world, the gospel has been bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. Now, it doesn't mean that we fully comprehend and grasp grace and, and its depths and all of its complexities, but there's, there's an understanding uh, that, the, the, that Paul is writing uh, to uh, the church in Colossia. And there's an understanding that we see taking place in, in Jonah's life here as he's speaking and praying. Now, what is it that we are to understand? Well, there's two things that we need to understand. One is how little we deserve God's mercy. And then second is how much God gives mercy. Those are the two lenses by which we need to be able to see in order to understand the whole nature of grace. And it's by understanding and seeing with these two lenses that we're able to receive grace. We, we see Jonah, uh, and considering those two lenses here as he's uh, praying to the Lord. And, and you see really kind of, uh, it's an interesting prayer because it's, it's not kind of a, a consistent flowing. It's, it's circular and it comes back, but there's, there's constant themes. And we can break it up in, in a couple of parts. In, in verse 2 through 4, we see this, I called out to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. So that's the, the beginning is he's, he's kind of thinking about the prayer. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and, and you heard my voice. And in verses, verse 3, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the flood that surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. In other words, he recognizes the situation that he is in, and he knows why he's in that situation. And so he's not saying, this is unfair, and it's not a matter of, Lord, help me. We don't even see any of that. He did say he is, is cried out to the Lord. And then, and yet, and then you pick up again in, in, um, in verse 4, I'm driven away, and he goes, and you see this pattern of, of a man who recognizes his situation, he recognizes his need. He recognizes his lack of deserving. And yet, and the and yet that we see repeated in here in two different places, um, particularly in verses four and six, is the essence of grace. There's an and yet in the life of everyone who has experienced grace. The and yet is the heart of the gospel. This is what I am and this is what I deserve. And yet... This is what you've done, and this is what I've received. The end yet is what is the connection between what was and is and what will be. It's the connection between our brokenness, our waywardness, our unbelief, and the heart of God, who gives what is not deserved. And both of those lenses are absolutely necessary in order for someone to experience grace. People have a tendency to look out of it one or the other and perhaps emphasize one or the other, but both lenses are absolutely necessary. 
My mother has an interesting and an unusual eye condition. It wasn't diagnosed until she was an adult. Um, some people have 20-20 vision. She has 20 vision, although she can see out of both eyes, just not at the same time. So while she was a student growing up in school, she would go and they would do the, you know, the annual the eye test and you cover the one eye and she could read the chart perfectly. And they would then cover the other eye and she could read the chart perfectly. The problem was that nobody was able to de determine as for some neurological reason, her brain doesn't see out of both eyes at the same time. So therefore, when she ever tried to think, play things like tennis or racquetball or anything that dealt with depth perception, she could not do it, which is probably why she thinks all sports are stupid. But that's a whole other issue. That's... Because nobody thought about that because she would look at one and she would look out of the other and it, and it wasn't diagnosed until sometime later on in, in her life when they realized that there was a problem. What was the problem? And so in one sense, she had perfect vision. And, and it's a, actually, I think it's a wonderful metaphor for many of us who are part of the church because we may see, okay, we emphasize uh, the love of God and the, and the grace of God, but we don't recognize our need. And if we don't recognize our need, we don't appreciate, we may not even experience grace. Other people are so focused on their, uh, on their condition and their, 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 their sin, the, the things that they regret in their lives, that they can't really see clearly about what grace is, which is not rooted in our hearts, but it's rooted in, in God's heart. It requires that we see with both lenses in order to experience grace. And when somebody is able to see out of both lenses for the first time, that's what we call conversion. See, it's by grace that somebody becomes a Christian in the first place. Somebody who recognizes, you know, I have this thing that's called sin in my life. It's in my heart. And then they hear the message of the gospel that God has sent Jesus Christ in the place of sinners to bear the punishment that we deserve. And that for those who believe in them, those who will receive, those who will accept the and yet, this is what I am, and yet God. When those two parts come together, it's like a chemical reaction, the power of the new life being born. And there's some of you here today that probably need to consider that. You may have been in church all of your life. You may be new and exploring this thing. You've tried to follow the rules, or at least so far as everybody knows, uh, maybe you, you, whatever it is, you need to recognize that both lenses are important in order for you to experience what the Bible promises, to recognize your sin and to recognize that God's grace is even greater. But we also need to recognize that grace is not only the way that we become Christians, grace is the way that we live and grow as Christians. Galatians 3.3, the Apostle Paul writes this, Are you so foolish, having begun in grace, you're now going to attain your goal by your own effort? In other words, there's a lot of people who believe, okay, first God made me alive, now it's up to me. And so they pour themselves and they believe it's through their zeal and through their own diligence. And I don't have time because it's a whole other sermon, but... Once we have become believers, we do cooperate with God. You know, before we're believers, when we are dead in our sin, and dead people don't help a whole lot with anything. But once you've been made alive, we are called to do certain things, such as read our Bibles and, and pray and commune with other, uh, pray to the Lord and commune with other believers who will encourage us to, to understand. But we could go through all of those motions, and many people do go through all of those motions and not experience God's grace because they're simply going through the motions. They're not really believing, they're just doing. And Paul said that apparently that was characteristic at a period in the church in Galatia. So look, you know, what are you being stupid? 
You know, you know that you began this journey by grace. And so you think that you're somehow just gonna perfect yourselves by your own efforts? God's grace is needed and at work and is ongoing in all of our lives, even as believers, until we reach that perfection, which is not in this life. And so Paul writes to the Galatians saying, you foolish, are you going to... But then he also says in Colossians this, so just as you receive Christ, uh, Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. And that begs this question, what is it, all right, if we're supposed to live the way that we received him in the first place, how do we receive him? Well, we recognized our need, our sin, and we repented. And we recognized God's grace and the provision in Jesus Christ, and we believed. And so faith and repentance, faith and repentance, that is the way that we live our lives. But both recognize the before part of the end yet, this is what I'm like. And yet here's what I get because of what God has done. That power of God's grace continues. And we see here in chapter two that Jonah is looking through both lenses. He's recognizing I was in the pits because of what I had done. Didn't say he didn't deserve it. None of this was unfair. And yet you have raised me up from the pit. He's amazed. Now, there's one other thing that I can only touch on here very quickly, but it's important. Because in two places here, Jonah makes reference to turning his attention to the temple. Why? Well, because the temple is the place where the sacrifice was made. The sacrifice was offered every year on Yom Kippur for all of God's people. The sacrifice, the, the, the sacrifice was offered, and if it was received, the people were forgiven of their sin. And he's turning his attention to that. And yet Jonah himself is a foreshadowing of the once-for-all sacrifice in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when he's turning his attention, he's not simply saying, okay, this is what's happened, and so now I've experienced grace, this is what's going to happen. Grace is not cheap. He recognizes that it's costly, and there's a sacrifice that needs to be made. And so he's turning attention, and his hope is in the God who has provided the sacrificial system, the one who has instituted the sacrifice, the one who provides the sacrifice itself. And that is the key in order to be able to experience, to receive the grace that God has given for us. And so we see in Jonah that there's a work of grace that is going on in his life, and we see that he is experiencing one who has been a prophet of God, one who already belongs to God. So this was not a conversion experience. It may be kind of like a second conversion. You've got some people that talk about that, which is metaphorical, not reality. I mean, once you've been born, you, you know, it's kind of tough to get born again, except for in a spiritual sense. But you have people like um, Jonathan Edwards at, at one point when he began to understand grace at a new level, he said, I felt like I was born again, again. John Wesley, kind of the same thing. He'd been a minister. He'd even been a missionary. He'd come over here to Georgia. I don't know if you know its history, but it's kind of funny. He... He was single when he came over here. He met a, a young girl in, uh, in the church in Savannah, in Savannah. He asked her out. She said no. He excommunicated her. Um, and so, um, and somehow soon after that, he began to understand more about grace. And he said he experienced a new conversion. In that case, he may actually have been converted for the first time. I, I don't know. So we're not born again a second time. But when we begin to recognize that we live not just by God's grace, but we live in God's grace. It changes everything. And while there are some here who may need to hear how you receive grace in the first place, there are others here who need to hear that's how we live. In fact, every one of us needs to be reminded of that reality. 
But there's a question when you're talking about grace that, that is here in this text that is subtle, but it's one on the minds of many, many people. And that is, okay, so we know what grace is and we know how we receive grace. Is it possible for me to lose grace? And the answer is no. And the answer is yes. How's that? Ready to go home? No. Um, it depends on what you mean. Can somebody lose their salvation? Well, the, over, uh, the preponderance of teaching of the Scripture says no, because it's God who began to work in you, and God who says he's going to keep, keep, uh, keep doing that work until he until gets through it and to, to the end of that work. Jesus says, no one's going to take you from me. I have you. And so salvation is not lost, and Jonah here even affirms salvation belongs to God, and God doesn't lose anything. People think that he does, but ultimately he's in control of all things. And so salvation itself cannot be lost, but... Jonah here speaks of a grace that can be lost. We see it in in verse 8 here. As Jonah is continuing his prayer, um, he says this, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. And so he's talking about those who give their attention to things that are not God. And there's a consequence, there's a result that happens there. Actually, I I prefer the translation of the original uh, 1984 uh, New International Version. It says it this way. It's, It's easier to remember, and I think it's more vivid, but it's saying the same thing. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit a grace that could be theirs. And so we, we see the parallel. Hebrew is in, in precise uh, language. It's, you know, context tells everything. We, we, you know, English is the same as well. We use the same word for different things. And so context tells us. And, and, and so they're, they're saying the same thing. Those who pay regard, those who cling to the worthless idols. And, and so what we have here is this whole idea of idolatry, which just seems so primitive in our mindset, and yet the reality is every one of us is prone to do it. As John Calvin had said, our hearts are little, like little um, idol factories. But what is idolatry? Let me give you a couple of definitions. Elise Fitzpatrick, Fitzpatrick in her book, Idols of the Heart, which I highly recommend, says this, idols aren't just stone statues, No, idols are the thoughts, desires, longings, and expectations that we worship in the place of the true God. Idols cause us to ignore the true God in search of what we think we need. Os Guinness, another author, uh, theologian, says this, idolatry may not involve explicit denials of God's existence or character. It may well come in the form of an over-attachment to something that is in itself perfectly good. An idol can be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero, anything that can substitute for God. In other words, while we think of idolatry as simply somebody creating these things and putting up on the wall, putting up on a shelf and bowing to it, idolatry is anything that grabs our attention, anything that we believe that by having our having it, we have all that we need. It gives us the comfort that we desire. It gives us an identity. And yeah, the absence of it makes us feel like we are lost and feel like we would be exasperated. And as Guinness has pointed out, it's not necessarily the bad thing. So it's, you know, not the... The alcoholic who needs his alcohol. It's 
the parent who lives through his or her children. It is the person who is working so hard that they don't have a life because they need that ever-elusive security of having enough. It is the student-athlete whose identity is wrapped up in performance or being part of a team or part of a, a, part of a group. All of those things can easily become idols when they are the things that provide us our identity and our comfort and our security. And it doesn't require that we say, I don't believe in God, because the pews of every church, every church, are filled with people who are struggling with idolatry. It's all of us. Paul Tripp puts it this way, idolatry occurs when anything created to point you to God replaces in the thoughts and the desires of your heart, replaces God in the thoughts and the desires of your heart. Desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. And what Jonah came to recognize here is, you know, those who cling to worthless idols, in his case, it was his Hebrew nationalism. Good things. He was part of the people of God. I mean, he was and a prophet to the people of God. And he was proud of his countrymen and proud of his heritage. And the people that he was being sent to, they had come in and not just been opponents, they had brutalized them. But because he was such a Hebrew nationalist, he didn't want anything to happen to that for that other nation. Good things becoming the ultimate things idols in our lives, and we need to be aware. And Jonah, recognizing that he was clean to those, we forfeit a grace that can be there. So did Jonah lose his salvation? No, clearly, because even when he says, throw me into the sea, that was God's plan and God's providence in order to not only bring Jonah, but to amaze the, the sailors when the sea stopped. And, and he continued. God continues the work that he began in, in Jonah. But he did forfeit grace. He forfeited peace. He forfeited hope for a time. He forfeited comfort, obviously, with the circumstances that he's in, all because of his idolatry. These things that are gifts of God that he gives to us can be easily forfeited because while we worship God, we allow idols to infect our souls. And Jonah here is a great example to us all because, again, we need to see ourselves in Jonah. And the discoveries that Jonah is making here apply for every, to every one of us. And they are a reminder to us is that no matter who you are, no matter how great of a day you've had today or had yesterday, you're in need of grace. And no matter how lousy of a week you've had, grace is yours if you die to yourself and believe and trust in God's provision. My hope is that God would be at work within us, each of us, enabling us to see where we are clinging to worthless idols, and setting us free, that we would be awed in the renewal of the experience of God's grace. Father, we pray that you 
would be at work.